Good morning, everyone. It's really nice to be here this morning in sunny Stonehaven. It's like this all the time here, is that right? Yes. I'm definitely going to be heading to the beach after this morning. It looks really lovely. So thank you so much for having me here. Um, I don't know about anyone else, but does anyone else ever feel like often they miss the obvious? Like they have one of those Homer Simpson, like, dope moments. Does anyone else kind of have that? Seems to happen to me quite a lot. And um, actually, this happened to me just a couple of weeks ago. And I was down in Manchester. I'd gone down to a Jesus Culture Conference, and I was really excited about this conference. I'd kind of marked out time in my diary for it to be like a kind of spiritual retreat away. There were some really good speakers there. I'd um, booked into the Hilton Hotel, and I'd got there early to enjoy the pool and the steam room, and I was having a really lovely, relaxing little break. And then I decided to go for dinner, and eventually it was time to go to the conference. Now, I'd never been to the particular... It was the Manchester Complex Convention. Central Convention Complex. And I'd never been there before. I didn't know what it looked like, but I wasn't worried because I had my Google Maps on my phone. And so my plan was after my nice relaxing afternoon, I was going to just follow my map and try and find the venue that I was going to. Unfortunately, things didn't quite go to plan. And I don't know if you've ever tried using Google Maps when you're kind of walking with it, but it just doesn't seem to keep up with you, right? And you kind of start walking and you think you're following it, and then all of a sudden it recalibrates and you realize you're like half a mile in the wrong direction, and then you have to go back on yourself. And everything was just going really wrong for me. And a journey that should have really taken about 10 minutes ended up about 45 minutes later, and I still hadn't found the place I was going. And the thought eventually started to cross my mind, thinking, actually, I'm not going to make it tonight. I'm just going to go back to my hotel. I'm so frustrated right now. I can't find this place. I'm just going to give up and go home. But eventually I decided to check out what I thought was the train station that I'd been walking round and round in circles. And as I went into this train station, I realised that this was actually the conference venue that I was looking for. And actually, for the last half an hour, pretty much, I'd just been walking round and round in circles. And to make things worse, when I got back to my hotel room, I actually had a view out my window onto the building that I was looking for. So talk about missing the obvious. This morning, um, I'm going to be looking at a passage. I think you guys have looked at it before, but we're going to look again at um, Mark chapter 6, 45 to 56. And it's the passage where Jesus walks on water. And if you were to read this passage, you would look at this passage and, and you think to the, about the disciples. It feels like the disciples are missing the obvious here. So we're going to read together. Um, it's going to come up on the screen, um, but also if you have a Bible. Um, so it's Mark 6, 45 to 46. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognised Jesus, and they ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. 
I've been really enjoying um, this series through the book of Mark. It feels like it's really fast-paced and filled with action. You know, Mark just puts miracle upon miracle, story upon story, and it's like he's building this crescendo, um, building towards something important. You know, first of all, it's about healing, and then deliverances, and then the little girl that's been raised from the dead. Then last week, you looked at the feeding of the 5,000, and now, immediately, this passage starts immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. We're now on to the next miraculous act. Jesus walking on water. I feel like Mark is definitely trying to tell us something. But for the disciples, they're still not getting it. And for us, it's easy to criticise that. It's easy to look at the passage and to criticise them for missing, missing the revelation that Jesus is trying to bring them. It's easy for us because we know the full picture. We've got the whole story. But actually, if you think about it, in the Old Testament, lots of God's prophets were able to do miraculous, miraculous things. You know, what about Moses, who took a staff and turned it into a snake, who released the plagues on Egypt, who parted the Red Sea, or Elijah, the, the story where the oil never ran out, and he even brought someone back from the dead. You know, these are just a couple of miracles that some of the prophets of God had been known to do. So maybe it's not surprising that the disciples hadn't yet understood that Jesus is the Son of God simply based on the miracles that he's performed. Because the truth is they don't really know what they're looking for. They don't know what to expect. And for a lot of Jews at the time, as they were under Roman oppression, their idea of the Messiah coming to rescue them was this idea of a warrior or a soldier. You know, that their idea wasn't what Jesus looked like. You know, they weren't expecting him. But I think in this passage, Jesus is looking to continue to reveal himself to the disciples. He wants to take them to a place of deeper revelation as to the truth of who he is. He wants to show them his glory. And you know, the glory of God is many things. Way too much for, for me to unpack in one talk. But as I've gone through this passage, I feel like there's three aspects of God's glory that Jesus looks to reveal to his disciples. And the first thing, the glory of God, is his divinity revealed. And what I'm really struck by in this passage is that this is such a personal journey for the disciples. You know, they're wrestling with everything that's been going on. They've been watching miracle upon miracle. They've just witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. And it says here in verse 52 that they've not understood about the loaves, that their hearts were hardened. And as I read this, I don't think this is a criticism of the disciples, but more like a commentary of where they're at at the moment. You know, they haven't yet had a revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. Their hearts are hard. I don't think that they've chosen to hard their hearts to Jesus. I simply think that that is our human condition without a revelation of who Jesus is, the fact that our hearts are hard. In an example of this, you know, many hundreds of years ago, people thought the world was flat. And if you were to have said to them that the world was round or a globe, you know, their hearts would have been hardened to that truth because they didn't have knowledge. They hadn't experienced that for themselves. But eventually, as their experience and knowledge grew, they were able to accept the truth that the world wasn't flat and actually it was round. You know, I think there's many people in the world today who we perceive their hearts are hardened towards God. But the truth is they simply haven't had an encounter with Jesus. They simply haven't come to know the truth of who Jesus is in their lives in order that they can open their hearts to him. You know, for many of us here, when we look on the journey of our faith, we can think of a time perhaps where our hearts were hardened to God. And there came a time where we either encountered him or we had a revelation or something changed in us in a way that we were able to open our hearts to him. You know, we've all had a faith journey and we're all still on a faith journey. And what I see here is the disciples, they were on a journey. 
They had made the decision to follow Jesus. They followed him as a teacher and Jesus was happy to have them. He was happy to have them just as they were. You know, he didn't demand that they went off to Jewish theological school and learn all the scriptures so that they would be able to recognize who he was. He simply invited them to come and to be with him, come as fishermen, to live with him, to watch him minister and to teach them about the kingdom of the God. All the time knowing that there would come a point when they would have to answer the question, who do you say that I am? So Jesus, he wants them to understand, but he doesn't want to force them. He invites them to come on a journey, to experience the kingdom of God for themselves, to be able to, as it says in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good, and then to make up their own mind. Because there's something so powerful, isn't there, about having the freedom to make our own confession of faith. And actually, in God, it's not just about confessing our sins and and saying that Jesus is Lord so that we go to heaven when we die you know for us it's much more than that he wants us to catch cold hold of his kingdom values he wants us to value what he values to to love what he loves to welcome the power of the kingdom of God in order that we can lead people into into freedom and truth and purpose and that's what he wanted for the disciples he wanted them to be the ones who would establish his church And ultimately, he knew that all of that would hinge around this question, who do you say that I am? So they needed a revelation of him as the son of God. So this is a personal story. It's personal to the disciples. It's personal as Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. And this, as we know, is the second sea miracle in the book of Mark. And I think the sea represents it's the disciples' place of work. You know, it's their lives. It's their livelihood. They were fishermen. Um, It's a place they depended on. It's a place they've probably spent most of their time. It's a place that they knew well. And it's not the first time that the disciples have encountered a storm. And if we remember back to the first sea miracle, Jesus at that time was in the boat with him and he was asleep and the, the disciples woke him up and he calmed the storm by speaking over the wind and the waves. And at the end of that passage, the disciples were left answering the question, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And in this passage, I found it interesting. So this time Jesus isn't in the boat with the disciples. This time he's on the shore and he's looking out and he can see that the disciples are struggling. Verse 48, it says he saw them straining at the the oars. And then it says shortly before dawn, he went out to them. So as I read that, it feels like there's a period of time where he was watching the disciples and he saw that they were struggling. And then then he decided to go to them. Why did he leave them struggling? And I can't help but wonder, was there a little test in this maybe for the disciples? You know, they had been in this situation before, albeit Jesus was in the boat before, but they had witnessed him call on God's power to calm the storm. But And so was he watching to see if they could handle this? This was the second time they experienced it. Could they handle um, this storm? But as Jesus watched, he realizes that fear has gripped the disciples and once again they're in trouble. So he decides to go to them. And in this moment, he's looking to give them a deeper revelation. So the last time he calmed the storm, but this time he walks on water and he goes out to them. And, and, it, and it talks about in the passage how he's going to pass them by. But the disciples don't get it. And instead of taking the presence of Jesus in that moment as an encouragement um, that everything's going to be OK, they become even more terrified thinking that Jesus is a ghost. And then again, when Jesus realizes they're still struggling in his goodness, it said he was going to pass by. But in his goodness, he changes direction and he goes to them and he gets in the boat, calming the storm along with their fears. So it's personal. It's personal for Jesus. He has the disciples in mind. 
and he goes to them and he climbs in the boat with them. But it's also, Mark is also trying to communicate with us, the reader. He's communicating really purposefully. It's not just about the, the disciples' response to Jesus, but it's also about ours. Mark is purposefully building a case for Jesus as a Messiah, a case for Christ. I don't know if any of you recently were helping out with the Holiday Club. You know, that was one of the segments on the Holiday Club each day, a case for Christ. You know, this is one of those moments. This is a pivotal moment. And if we knew our Old Testaments really, really well, we might begin to catch the significance of what is going on in this passage. For example, in the book of Job, which is thought to be one of the oldest books in the Bible, in chapter 9, verse 8, it says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. That's a beautiful picture. In fact, this very act of Jesus walking on the water, walking on the sea, is actually fulfilling that prophetic picture from the book of Job. And there's something else too. At the end of verse 48, Mark uses this phrase that Jesus was about to pass by. So I just want to like underline that phrase, pass by, because that's really important. And if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 33, I just want to look at a couple of moments in the Old Testament where, again, we see this phrase, pass by. So Exodus 33, um, starting from 14, and, and this is the story of Moses. And we know Moses. We know that he was a man famous for loving the presence of God, for living in the presence of God. And, and this is that passage when he's up on Mount Sinai and he's meeting with God and, and the cry of his heart is, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us up from here. And I'm sure this is a passage that we're very familiar with. Um, but I want to continue on a little bit from there. Um, so it says, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish us and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then verse 18, it says, then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see my face and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by then I will remove my hand and you will see my back but my face must not be seen you know when I read this passage Moses prayed a bold prayer show me your glory you know I've read that several times and I'm struck by the boldness of that request you know Moses was just a man in the presence of God and you know he doesn't even say please it's like a demanding kind of now show me your glory and incredibly the Lord agrees to his request and, and he gets to stand in the presence of God as the glory of God passes by. And he gets to look upon the image of God, albeit from behind. So I want you to keep a finger in Exodus 33. And then we're going to flip now, if you want to look in your Bibles, to First Kings 19, starting from verse 11. I think it will come up on the screen. And now we move on to Elijah. And there's this moment in the Old Testament when the Lord also appears to pass by Elijah. And this time he's also up a mountain, he's up Mount Horeb, 
Um, and this is in a season of his life where he feels discouraged. You know, he's been on the run. He wanted to pack it all in. But the angels have come to him. They strengthened him. And he's been on this journey to come up the mountain and to come and meet with God. And he goes into a cave and it's there that God speaks to him. And it says in, um, from verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, Elijah the prophet in that moment had a revelation of the audible voice of God, albeit a whispering voice. So both Moses and Elijah have encountered the glory of God. And Moses, who represents the law, he had a revelation of the image of God. And then you have Elijah, who represents the prophets, who had a revelation of the voice of God. So what do you get when you take the image of God and you add in the voice of God? You get Jesus. And you see how this beautiful prophetic picture is all tied together in this passage as Jesus, the glory of God, Jesus, the image of God, and Jesus, the voice of God, now comes to pass by. And what I love as well, in the Old Testament, you know, Moses went up the mountain to pray and meet with God. Elijah went up the mountain to pray and meet with God. And for the holy men, those glory experiences had to stay on the mountain. But what I love is that in the New Testament and under the New Covenant, you know, Jesus went up the mountain to meet with God, but the glory doesn't stay on the mountain. The glory came down the mountain and then passed in front of the disciples, passed in front of a bunch of ordinary fishermen. And I absolutely love that. And it's a prophetic sign, the fulfillment. Jesus is the Messiah, the image of God, the voice of God as he passes by ordinary, these ordinary guys. Not just a favoured leader or a holy prophet, but a bunch of fishermen. And I love that. The glory of God for the first time in this passage, it's his divinity revealed to mankind. Secondly, the glory of God is his goodness. Now, hopefully you've still got your finger in Exodus 33. I want to turn back to that passage and look again at that. As we saw, Moses asked to see the glory of God. And how does the Lord respond? He responds by saying to him that he will show him his goodness. And then he goes back again to talk about the glory The glory of God is his goodness. And what's interesting about Moses is that he, at this point, he's had three trips up the mountain to meet with God. And you can look back through the book of Exodus at the stories for yourself. But the first occasion when he went up the mountain, you know, God gave him a warning for the Israelites that they needed to consecrate themselves, that they weren't allowed to come into the presence of God. The second trip up the mountain, Moses was given the Ten Commandments. And now we come to the third trip up the mountain, and this is when something extraordinary happens. And I love this. So in Exodus 33, verse 29, it says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. You know, now it, I think Moses spoke with the Lord on the first trip up, his, up the mountain. You know, Moses spoke with the Lord on the second trip up the mountain. But what was it that had happened on the third trip up the mountain that had made him come down with a radiant face? It was the fact that he had looked upon the glory of God. It was the fact that he had looked upon the goodness of God. And as a result, his face was radiant. 
And I love that. I love that even in the Old Testament, even in the part of the Bible where often we perceive that God is an angry God, that he's judgmental, that he's wrathful. But actually the truth that we see here is that even in the Old Testament, his glory was in his goodness. I just think that's awesome. He's always been good. He's always been good. And his plans have always been good and plans to prosper us, to give us hope and to give us a future, plans to rescue us. But before Jesus, God had to punish sin. He had to punish sin to protect what he loved. But we know that the Old Testament was never meant to be the end of the story. The whole point of the Old Testament, that it was meant to highlight and build a revelation to the world that we actually needed a savior, that we needed the Messiah. And the point of the whole Old Testament is that it points towards Jesus. It points towards the coming Messiah. But the glory of God is his goodness. And Jesus is the revelation of the goodness of God. Jesus is the revelation of the goodness of God to the world. And he was always intended to be God's rescue plan. And there's so many ways in the Old Testament that it points to Jesus. And part of me even wonders, was it a kind of form of Jesus that maybe passed in front of Moses in that encounter on the mountain? But that was just a thought. But Jesus has been sent to earth to deal with the problem of sin once and for all. And so now he's free to be both the image of God, the voice of God, and to represent the true nature of God. And that is that he is good, that he's not angry at the world, but that he is good. And we see the theme of his goodness building throughout Mark and the book of Mark up to this point, as we see Jesus bring healing and deliverances and raising people from the dead, supernatural provision. You know, Jesus is healing and restoring broken people. You know, that is the goodness of God. And now we come to this passage in Mark. And again, we see the goodness of God. We see his goodness to his disciples. Firstly, that he chooses to reveal his glory to a bunch of ordinary guys. You know, that is the goodness of God. But secondly, in the way he directly responds to the heart cry of the disciples, wherein they're in this moment of trouble, you know, their cry of fear. And I think in some ways for the disciples, their fear had actually gotten in the way of having a true revelation of who Jesus was. You know, their fear was all consuming. And I just had this thought that we need to be careful that fear doesn't stop us from having a true revelation of who Jesus is and pressing in further and pressing in deeper to the truth of who he is. But Jesus, he tries to reassure the disciples, take courage, don't be afraid, it's me. And then he climbs into the boat with them. He gets in beside them and the storm dies down. And they're completely amazed. And in that moment, their fear is replaced with wonder. He responded to their cry. He changed his plan. You know, the plan appeared to be that he was going to pass by in some kind of sovereign symbolic act. But actually, when he sees that they're still in trouble, he changes direction and, and goes towards them. You know, it's God's goodness that he changes direction in response to us. You know, in the beginning, God's plan was for us to be with him in the garden in this perfect relationship, you know, to walk together, talk together, to do life together. And we know the story, don't we, that through Adam and Eve, sin entered the world. But God didn't abandon us. Instead, he just changed the plan. He made a new one. He moved towards us. He he. He created a plan of salvation to bring redemption to to humanity. And that plan was Jesus. He is the goodness of God. He's the image of God and he represents the truth of who the Father is. And that is that he is good. Okay, thirdly, the glory of God is in his power over darkness. 
So the final area in this passage that I see the glory of God being revealed is his power over darkness. So firstly, in the storm. So Jesus didn't cause the storm, but he still had power over it. He had power to calm the storm. And as we've already said, he responded to the fear of the disciples. He drew close to them and he calmed the storm by getting in the boat. And I love what it says. He got into the boat with them and the wind died down. I love that phrase, with them. You know, Jesus could have calmed the storm from where he was, but it's the, a beautiful picture of the lovingness of God that he gets in the boat with the disciples, that he not only calms the physical storm, but he also cause, calms the emotional internal storm that's going on inside of the disciples at that moment. So he demonstrates his absolute power and authority, power not only to walk on water, but also power over the storm. You know, there's something about welcoming the presence of Jesus into the situation that calms the storm, that brings a peace in our hearts. Whatever the storms of life are that are going on, when we invite Jesus to come, when we invite him in, he has power over the storm. And then again, as we go to the Gennesaret at the end of this passage, we see how Jesus has power over sickness, as well as we see again his heart and his love for people. As soon as they get out of the boat, people recognize Jesus and they come to him. You know, it's not even clear that Jesus had any sleep um, as they've kind of just fresh off the boat and people are are gathering and, and desperate to meet with Jesus. And wherever he goes, people bring their sick. And as they simply touch his cloak, all were healed. And I just found myself meditating on that. You know, what did that look like to have... You know, crowds of people coming to Jesus and all were healed. Such a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God just breaking out in that place. You know, no one was left out. All who came to him were healed. And I think at that time in Israel, the conditions were right. You know, the people of Israel were in desperate need. God had been silent for over 400 years and suddenly Jesus appears on the scene and he appears bringing the kingdom of God and bringing hope and bringing healing and bringing power. And when people hear about it, they're desperate to have it. And they gather and they crowd around him and all who encountered Jesus were healed. You know, as I look at the world around us today, in some ways I think the conditions are right once again. The world thinks that God is silent. You know, many people think that God is absent, that he's distant, that he's uninterested, or maybe even that he's mad at them. You know, the world needs a fresh revelation of the goodness and the power of God, and I think it's desperate for it. And, you know, we might perceive that their hearts are hardened to the gospel, but I think they're just waiting for a revelation of the truth of who God is. And you know, partly it's our responsibility to take that to them. It's our responsibility to represent God well. They need to know a revelation of his divinity, his goodness and his power. But if we want to carry that, then we first of all need that revelation of his divinity, his goodness and his power in our lives. And as I studied this subject, I've come to realize that actually Moses' prayer was not a bold prayer, but actually it's a prayer that is on the heart of God for every believer to pray. For everyone who knows him, I believe this is a prayer that God wants us to pray. Lord, show me your glory. And I'm just trying to build a bit of a case here. So I want to look in, at the, in the book of John, chapter 17, verse 24. And in chapter 17, it's this beautiful prayer that Jesus prays. He prays firstly for his disciples, but then he goes on to pray for believers. He prays for us. And this is what he prays over us in verse 24. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. You know, that is what Jesus prayed over his church, that we would see his glory. You know, I love that. 
And just as I want to come and finish, I just want to look quickly at a few other scriptures, and they're just going to come up on the screen. Um, but firstly, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's talking about um, when Moses' face was radiant and when he came down the mountain, he had to cover his face because people couldn't look on his face because he was so radiant. The Israelites couldn't look at him. Um, and it goes on, as so I'm looking um, at verse 9, it says, If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, so that's talking about the ministry of the law, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? And then I move down to verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face. And down to 18, it says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is his spirit. You know, there's something about beholding the glory of God that actually changes us. And I believe the Lord wants to call us to behold his glory in order that we can represent him well to the world. And Psalm 34 verse 5 says that those who look to him are radiant. And finally, I want to look at the scripture in Isaiah 60 verse 1 to 3. It says, arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory can be seen on you and nations shall come to your light. I love that. I just think there's something about beholding the glory of God that is so key to seeing a move of God in this nation. And for us as followers of Jesus, it starts by being a people of his presence. It starts by being a people who want to come in that secret place and to meet with him and to speak with him and commune with him. You know, that's who Moses was. He was a man of the presence of God. But God wanted to give him a deeper revelation of who he was. And And Moses prayed this prayer, Lord, show me your glory. And as a result, as he looked upon the face of God or the back of God, his face became radiant. You know, I believe there's lots of us here today. We know what it is to come into the presence of God. But if we want to fulfill that Isaiah 60 to arise and shine, to be the light of Christ in the world, then we want to go deeper than that. We want to be people who know what it is to behold the glory of God in order that we become radiant, in order that we become this radiant light in a dark world, that we will look upon him, that we would be changed and that we would represent the truth of who he is, that he is God that he is good and that he is powerful. That is the truth of who God is. So I think God is looking for people who are bold enough to pray that prayer. Show me your glory. Why don't we stand?